So it's less about, uh, hey, go buy Bitcoin. Uh, and it's much more about just understanding structurally how you know, money works, really, right? It's something that they don't teach us in school. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I hope you're staying safe and sane out there. This is the first interview that we have recorded since the COVID-19 pandemic really took hold here in the United States. I know it's been going around the globe and have actually been tracking it for a while, but all the previous interviews have been recorded weeks in advance as we're prepping to do the Going Deep Summit, which is now postponed for at least three months. Uh, But as I saw everything unfolding, I've seen my mind return to uh, the interest in cryptocurrencies, digital assets that gripped me about two and a half years ago when we did interviews with Eric Voorhees, Joe Lubin, Brendan Eich, Roger Veer. And so I wanted to bring someone on who could talk a little bit about cryptocurrency, but also just a little bit about markets, uh, which have been absolutely volatile and chaotic and hard to make sense of. The best person that I could find was Anthony Pompliano. Anthony used to be a product manager at Facebook, uh, then went into investing, becoming an evangelist uh, for both cryptocurrencies and an investor in early stage startups. He then went on to join Morgan Creek, an investment firm where he is taking an active role in leading the firm's investing in digital assets and other uh, venture-backed startups along with Mark Yusko. Uh, Pomp has made all sorts of appearances on CNBC and other financial media to help translate Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to an audience that may be less familiar. In this interview, you'll hear us go right to something of a 202 type of level. Uh, If you want to get familiar with the basics, I encourage you to maybe Go find a past interview or go to YouTube to get some basics on what Bitcoin is and what we're talking about. But we do talk a little bit about the halving, where the quantity of new Bitcoins being produced will be cut in half this May. We also talk a little bit about how Morgan Creek is evaluating the investment landscape. And we end on a note of kindness that'll be very familiar to longtime listeners of this show. Uh, I had a great time talking to Pomp. I'm so grateful that he was able to share some time with me and that we were able to connect digitally for this interview. Apologize for a few breaks. The Zoom connection was not perfect, but it did the job. And we'll continue to produce interviews like this in the coming weeks as we shelter in place. Hope you're staying safe. Here's the conversation with Anthony Pompliano. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Um, Well, thank you for hopping online in these crazy times and giving me some of your time to be on the podcast. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. So let's start off. And when I when I told folks that we would be interviewing someone very, you know, in the crypto Bitcoin type of space, one of the first questions that came up is something that's top of mind for particularly characters in the space, but is kind of misunderstood or, or partially understood by those who aren't following it as closely. Can you start off by just explaining the having and what that means? Yeah. So um, if you think of uh, all money, um, whether it's uh, gold fiat currency or Bitcoin, 
um, there's basically two components to the money. How much is in the outstanding uh, circulation, right? So how much money is in the world? How much gold is in the world? How much US dollars is in the world? How much Bitcoin? And then there is the incoming supply. So the net new increase on a um, daily, weekly, monthly basis. And so um, if you take gold, for example, gold has however many ounces are out there in the world. And then gold miners are uh, digging up more gold and they're bringing it into the global supply on a daily and weekly basis. And so what happens in Bitcoin is um, the incoming supply has been programmatic uh, since the first day. And what that basically means is that um, in uh, 2009, when Bitcoin launched, uh, 50 Bitcoin were created every 10 minutes and they were given out to people who uh, ran the network. So you know, the first 10 minutes, 50 Bitcoin given out. Next 10 minutes, 50 Bitcoin given out. It's called the miner's reward. So the people who are running the network, that was the economic incentive for them to go ahead and run the software. And they would split it uh, pretty much on a pro rata basis. So if there was three miners, they split 50 Bitcoin among the three of them. There was 10, 20, 100, 1,000, et cetera. Well, as part of that programmatic um, incoming supply, what would happen is after four years of the 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes, it got cut in half. Now, it's approximately four years, so it's not exact, but about four years. And um, it went from 50 to 25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. So for another four years, it went 25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. Um, and then it got cut in half again to 12 and a half Bitcoin, which is where we are today. And so for the last uh, almost four years, about three years and uh, 10 months, uh, we have seen 12 and a half Bitcoin distributed every 10 minutes uh, to the, as that mining reward. And in May of 2020, so May of this year, we will see it get cut in half again from 12 and a half to 6.25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And the reason why this is important is you can think of it like uh, if gold was uh, seen to have um, you know $1,600 per ounce, like it's trading right now, and everyone wanted gold, but all of a sudden 50% of the gold miners shut down, that would mean that 50% of the new gold coming into the market every day would disappear. And so because of supply and demand economics, you're taking a scarce asset and you're making it a little bit more scarce. Obviously, if demand stays the same, right, that should drive price, et cetera. So that's why everyone is so um, kind of enthralled by this idea of the having, but that's how it kind of functionally works. And this is also really directly impactful on one of the sides of the Bitcoin equation that probably goes underappreciated. So people are quicker to grasp from like a consumer facing standpoint, hey, I could have this wallet, it could be on my phone, um, it could be transferred peer to peer. And that's all kind of the initial stage of where someone gets introduced to this. But the other side of this equation is the miners that are running these very energy intensive operations to keep the um, keep the chain going and keep building on this blockchain and their rewards and their own uh, almost like enterprise level business structure to keep this thing humming along is really impacted by the having. Correct. Yeah. The, the um, beauty of Bitcoin kind of structurally is one, you've got the having, so kind of that programmatic reduction um, in the economic incentive, which ultimately drives price right, or, or value of it. Uh, but also you have something called the difficulty adjustment. And the best way to think about this is uh, every two weeks, um, and this is a very overgeneralized version, but every two weeks, the Bitcoin algorithm looks out and says, how many people are running the software? And it estimates how difficult it should be in order to continue to uh, incentivize people to run the software. What I mean by that is 
if Bitcoin has, you know, let's use easy numbers, 100 miners and the difficulty is X, but all of a sudden we drop down to 80 miners, the difficulty will actually become easier for those miners to get part of the reward, right? Part of that 12 and a half Bitcoin every 10 minutes. Because what it happens is they want to incentivize more miners to come on. If it's easier, all of a sudden more miners come back, right? And we can get back up to that 100 number or more. If for some reason we get more miners coming online, then it will adjust and make it more difficult. And so it's trying to find kind of market equilibrium, if you will, um, in, in doing that. Uh, but that every two-week adjustment is really important because it kind of keeps price um, and the mining uh, community kind of uh, in tune with each other on a periodic basis. So how do you think about that from, you know, from a consumer level all the way up to institutions? I know as part of your role with Morgan Creek, like you're also talking to large institutions that are responsible with making really significant allocation decisions. And in the, in the midst of both a health and a financial crisis, some people maybe saw this coming. Some people have something of a plan in place, but a lot of people are grasping at straws to make sense of an environment where you know the last two weeks feel more like two months in the amount of information that I've consumed and the the sense that I've tried to make for implications for my own business for the people I love around me. Um, but like, how as an advisor have you thought about talking about this? It's going to sound crazy, but um, you know we, we've been writing and talking about this now for uh, for almost a year. Um, I, I think uh, one of the the first times that we really started talking about was June of last year. And it was this whole idea that um, public equities uh, and the market in general was getting very frothy. And uh, we thought that regardless of the individual stock price movements, um, there was the need to um, reduce rates, interest rates uh, down to zero or near zero. And that there would be massive quantitative easing uh, kind of over the next two, two and a half years. And so that was all going to coincide generally in the same time that this Bitcoin halving was going to uh, occur. And so uh, I actually don't think that we realized how uh, simultaneous this was all going to happen. Like it was all going to happen within like 50, 60 days of each other. But, but I think that for the most part, you know, there's a little bit of vindication because frankly, people thought we were a little crazy when we started saying that. Now, that was kind of the front half of what we thought would happen, right, was uh, there would be kind of a turnover in the market, there would have to be the race to zero and the quantitative easing. But then now we have to see what happens kind of in the second half. And the second half is basically the idea that uh, rates at zero quantitative easing drive people to look, uh, seek inflation hedge assets like gold or Bitcoin. Um, and when they go to do that, you're going to get have that Bitcoin having occur. And obviously, uh, if this plays out structurally how we believe it will, uh, that would lead to a very drastic increase in the U.S. dollar exchange value for Bitcoin. So we're kind of like, I don't know, 30 to 40 percent through the thesis. Uh, and so far, everything is playing out, um, I think, even better than we expected. Uh, but there's still kind of, you know, 50 to 70 percent of the thesis that has to play out for us to feel comfortable about saying, hey, we got that one right. And for a lot of folks, um, you know, a lot of listeners are around similar age as me. I'm 28 years old. You kind of like hear stories of the 2008 crisis. You, you maybe like I studied it and read some books about it, you know, the Michael Lewis book, uh, The Big Short. But it's really hard to wrap your mind around the implications of what runaway inflation or a significant amount of inflation that comes from 
you know, printing trillions and trillions, like it's just an absurd number, but trillions of dollars and in injecting that into the economy. So maybe you take that down even to more of a, a one-on-one level for folks of what that looks like on the ground and why, you know, throughout history, gold has served that purpose, but uh, Bitcoin also kind of falls in this as, as a constrained supply asset, uh, an opportunity to be a hedge against that. Yeah. So the best way to think about this is every asset price that you see in the markets or in finance, they're all denominated in dollars. And what I mean by that is uh, whether you're looking at a stock, a commodity, you know, gold, Bitcoin, oil, what, whatever it is, it's all priced in dollars. So the S&P or an individual stock, you know, uh, Boeing stock went from, or I'm sorry, uh, United Airlines stock went from like 80, $85 to $20, right? So there's two ways to think about that drop. One is that the value of that company dropped. And the second way to think about it is that the dollar got more valuable. And what I mean by that is um, that United Airlines stock, right, a single share used to cost 80 to $85. Now, you can buy that same exact stock certificate today for let's call it 20 or $25, right? And so it's either that it got less valuable and the dollar stayed stable or the dollar got more valuable. And so when you start to look at kind of how these markets have played out across stocks, commodities, et cetera. What we're finding is that the U.S. dollar has strengthened over the last two, um, two to four weeks, let's call it. And what I mean by that is uh, you can now spend a dollar and buy more in the market, right? So the prices of all of these assets, whether they're stocks, commodities, treasuries, et cetera, have drawn down. So my dollar that I'm holding can buy more than it used to be able to buy. Well, if you think of this from a structural economic standpoint, that is a, a deflationary environment, right? My currency is getting more valuable over time. What occurs in these situations, so 2008, this happened, right? What ends up happening is the government realizes when we go into a deflationary environment, the most valuable asset in the world is cash, it's the dollar. And so what has everyone been doing for the last three weeks in financial markets? They've been selling all their stocks, anything with a liquid market, they're just dumping into the market and they just want dollars, right? They want liquidity. So we call it a liquidity crisis. And so what ends up happening here is the government and the Fed will have to eventually weaken the dollar. And what that really means is they've got to stabilize asset prices from continuing to fall down. And they've got to one, get the, the bleeding to stop. And then two, eventually to have those assets recover. Well, how can you do that if you're the Federal Reserve or, or the government? What, one of the things you can do is you can print a lot of currency, right? You can flood the market with dollars because if I own a dollar and there's, let's say, $100 outstanding, I would own 1% of the monetary supply. But if all of a sudden they print you know, $900, now I own 1 1,000th of the monetary supply. So in essence, my dollar is becoming less valuable because there's more dollars available. Right? I have a, a smaller share. And so that's essentially what they did in 2009, 2010, because they printed uh, at the time hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, what they're going to do this time is they're going to print trillions of dollars. And so what you're going to see is this kind of transition from a deflationary environment where the dollar is the most valuable asset to an inflationary uh, environment where the dollar actually becomes much weaker and all asset prices will rise. So stocks will recover, commodities will recover. Bitcoin will recover, you know, or real estate, everything will recover. And ultimately, what you want to understand in these types of environments is you, you want to be long dollars or, or in cash during the liquidity crisis. And then when coming out of the liquidity crisis, you actually want to hold real assets. 
And so there, there's two kind of core components here that are really important. One is the investors who have the ability to buy real assets will do so and they will do very well because they're basically buying at low prices, right? Remember, go back to that stock example. You're buying the same stock at $20, $25. When it eventually recovers, you make a lot of money, right? But the, the part that kind of gets hidden in all of this is the fact that, you know, 49, 50% of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency payment. They live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, they have no savings for the most part. They definitely don't own any kind of uh, investment assets. And so when this occurs, what actually happens is their dollars get less valuable, but they don't have assets to kind of enjoy the upside swing of the asset prices. And so what it does is it drastically widens that um, wealth inequality gap. Uh, and it's really, really bad for the bottom 50% of uh, Americans. And then it's really, really good for the asset owners, you know, kind of at the top 50%. And so people just need to understand kind of how this works and structurally what's going on so that they can, uh, one, educate themselves, but then two, uh, protect themselves. And I, I'm kind of, talking into your book here, playing in, into your, your framework, but the notion that someone could, you know, theoretically set up a, a Coinbase account or something and start, you know, buying a Bitcoin for a couple dollars, whereas, uh, you know, there's certain assets where that's not even, you know, they're doing fractional shares at Robinhood or something, but then there's these other assets that you either have to uh, be like an accredited investor for, you just don't have access unless you have an enormous pool of resources at your disposal, which makes it one of the kind of few hedges that the average person out there could actually tap into. Yeah. So I, I always um, am really careful in these conversations to like overemphasize the fact that when you move from a deflationary environment to an inflationary one, right, the dollar getting less valuable, all asset prices will rise, right? And, and that includes stocks, commodities, Bitcoin, real estate, art, et cetera. So it's less about, um, hey, go buy Bitcoin. Uh, and it's much more about just understanding structurally how you know, money works really, right? It's something that they don't teach us in school. And, and so I think that's kind of the, the first step. The second step then is, well, for each individual person, they need to go through an exercise of how much money do I have? What's the risk tolerance I have? You know, am I willing to uh, be more speculative? Do I need to be more kind of conservative, right? Where do I end up on that spectrum? And then build a portfolio that kind of fits that risk tolerance. And so, you know, there's plenty of people who want to be super, super risky. And sure, they'll go buy, you know, a Bitcoin or something that is kind of much more binary in outcome. It's either going to be worth a lot more than it is today, or it's going to be worth a lot less than it is today. But it's probably not going to stay at the same price, right? So it's not going to be very stable. It's highly volatile. Compare that with, let's say, gold, which, look, gold should probably do pretty well over the next couple of uh, months and, and, you know, two, three years, but it's not like gold's going to go, you know, 10x in value, right? And, but at the same time, gold's not going to go to zero either, right? It's been around for 5,000 years. And so you got to just understand kind of what your, um, you know, risk tolerance is and then what assets fit into a portfolio that makes sense for you. And then also the other piece here um, is sizing it correctly, right? I, I always tell uh, folks, when I first start talking to them about this, like you should not go and invest a bunch of money, uh, whatever that percentage is for you, uh, in something that you don't really understand, right? And, and by nature, if you're learning about this for the first time, you just can't understand it as well as the people who've been doing it for a long time. And so I think uh, when it comes to that, it's hey, should I put you know one percent, five percent, if I'm a younger person, you know, in, into something like this and, and kind of learn about it, etc. That probably makes more sense than say, um, you know, somebody who says, "Hey, I'm going to go sink 90% of my net worth into this speculative asset, cross my fingers, and hope it goes up." Probably not the smartest move. 
Yeah. It's interesting how, how you touched on volatility there, because that's one of the next questions I want to address. And this is a, a meta framework that I have for all elements of life. I, I hope uh, for myself and for the people that I care about around me that they're exposed to a, a regular stream of small and moderate volatility so that they can be spared extreme volatility sometime down the line. Uh, physically, you know, I hope that you're going to the gym and breaking a sweat and getting your heartbeat thumping so you don't drop dead of a heart attack because you didn't take care of yourself and at a, at a young age. And so similarly, one of the things that I learned for the first time a couple weeks ago was that there were explicit barriers in the uh, general trading for equities and bonds that froze trading after a 7% drop. And this was a, a, you know, a centrally, centrally decreed mechanism for constraining the volatility of the market as it was convulsing and trying to figure out what was going on. And meanwhile, there, you know, people were saying, um, I can't remember where the tweet was, but it was like, you know, where's the, where's the constraints on Bitcoin's volatility as it like, I think lost 50, 70% of its value. And, you know, it trades through the night. You're, you're, you can't possibly be awake for every single price fluctuation. And it's built in, like you said, to have much more volatility than other things out there. So partially you can see why it's confirming my priors and, and playing to some of my biases that I already have in place when I see that. But can you just talk a little bit about relative to some of these other assets, part of your kind of more bullish position is the fact that it has that regular cadence of small and moderate volatility, whereas other um, assets out there aren't privy to those same shocks. Yeah, so there's a couple of things in there. First, let's just start with volatility. Uh, volatility is not good or bad, right? Volatility is just the movement of price, um, which I think is really important. And the second component of volatility is it works both on the upside and the downside. I think a lot of times when people hear about volatility, it has this negative connotation. And everyone thinks, oh, that means it goes down in, in price. But if you think of like Amazon stock, for example, Amazon stock is highly, highly volatile right? Since it's gone public every single year, it's drawn down double digits uh, in that year. And the average intra-year drawdown is over 30%. It even drew down once over 90% in a year, right? So highly volatile. Well, it's one of the best performing stocks as well, because again, volatility works on the downside and on the upside. So that, that's kind of just how to understand and think about volatility is uh, if something is volatile and goes down, it can go down a lot. But also, if you want to have really high returns, you need assets that are volatile on the upside as well, right? So, so don't be scared necessarily of volatility. Understand what type of volatility risk you're taking. Now, when it comes to uh, the stock market, for example, uh, there's a couple of different mechanisms that are in place that uh, try to temper uh, the, this volatility. So the first one is hours of operation, which you mentioned, right? The stock market in the United States is closed more hours a week than it is open. Right? It's obviously closed on the weekends, and then it's only open from about 8.30 to 4 o'clock uh, during the week. So, or I'm sorry, 9.30 to 4 o'clock uh, during the week. So if you think of it that way, um, there, there's kind of this uh, you know, time period where every, all the trading is stuffed into um, th this kind of six, seven hour time period during the day. Now, the second thing is the circuit breakers. And, and the circuit breakers basically, uh, there's three circuit breakers on the way down. So if the stock market drops 7%, in a single day, when it hits 7%, they will actually say timeout, all trading is paused for 15 minutes, right? They halt trading. If then when they turn trading back on, it falls and hits 13% down, they will say timeout, they'll stop trading for 15 minutes again. So a second trading halt. If for some reason when they turn it back on, 
and it falls all the way down to 20%. So if the stock market loses 20% in a single day, they say time out, everyone go home for the day. So kind of you get the first two circuit breakers at seven and 13% are 15 minute pauses uh, in trading or halts. Uh, but if we hit 20% down in a single day, everyone will go home, trading's over for the day. And so those work on the downside. Now what's very funny about the stock market is there are no circuit breakers on the upside. So the other days the stock's you know, up 9%, 10%, et cetera, no circuit breakers. And so um, it, it's kind of a, uh, a very systematic way to uh, prevent highly volatile days on the downside without hurting the highly volatile days on the upside. Um, and then to your point, um, you know, when you bring up Bitcoin, for example, the reason why Bitcoin uh, is so volatile uh, is a combination of two things in my opinion. One is it's a fully free market. So 24-7, global, thing that it has is that it also um, is a relatively small asset, right? So when you have an asset that only trades, um, you know, a billion dollars a day in some cases or, or whatever the numbers are, uh, it's just much easier. Somebody comes in and buys, you know, $25, $50 million worth of Bitcoin in a day, the price can move pretty drastically. Or if somebody sells that into the market, the price can move pretty drastically. And so what I think you're seeing is kind of this whole uh, evolution of price discovery when it comes to Bitcoin. And people are trying to figure out what is this thing worth? And that number continues to change on a uh, daily basis, or at least what the market believes it's worth. Um, and, and there's no mechanism there to prevent high levels of volatility. So you get very high levels of volatility in a free market. Um, the bad news is you can see days where it drops, you know, 5%, 10%, 50% a couple of days ago. The good news, though, is you can also see that in reverse, right? We had a day, I think, two months ago, it was up 40% in a day, right? And, and so over long periods of time is really where I focus. I don't worry about trading at all. Um, I, I kind of think of Bitcoin as this really long-term uh, investment, and uh, it's either going to be worth way more than it is today or it's going to be worth zero. And so I kind of act accordingly and don't worry so much about the everyday prices, but that's why the volatility happens. And I've heard you also talk about how its value increases as more people learn to use it, are using it, and that has, you know, the beneficial network effects that, um, you know, the big fang stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Google, all get their credit for. Um, but another way that I've come to think about it is almost in like the terms of minimization of regret, where, you know, now that I've learned of it, I would feel so stupid to have not at least had a small portion of it if it has that kind of upward potential that's potentially there. Um, I think sometimes you, you reference it as like an asymmetric asset from an upside standpoint where like almost as like a minimization of regret, like if I don't at least like familiarize myself with it and get, you know, some fractional percentage of a Bitcoin, then I can at least, you know, let go of that potential regret that I could have down the road. Yeah, it, you know, look, there's people who call it like a, a chaos hedge, um, a uh, schmuck insurance, right? all these terms that are out there. And, and really what they're all talking about is the idea of, uh, it's kind of like what Bill Ackman just did, right? So, so here, here's exactly what Ackman just did. Bill Ackman's got a multi-billion dollar uh, investment portfolio. And at the beginning of March, he spent $25 million, $27 million. And he basically bought uh, a very complex asset that would do incredibly well if the market tanked, right? So he said, look, all of my assets are long the market. I'm betting on America. I'm betting on the stock market. I'm betting on these companies. But on the off chance I'm wrong, I'm going to put a very, very small amount of money on this one asset 
that if every if all hell breaks loose, it'll make a hundred times its money, right? And so what ended up happening is the market tanked. The market went down 30, 35%. Bill's 25, $27 million investment ended up being worth $2.6 billion, right? Which sounds like a, a, a ridiculous number, right? Yeah. Made a hundred X on his investment, right? You know, just under 27 million to 2.6 billion. Bill Ackman was only up 7% this month. Why? Because all of those assets he was long have lost money, right? They lost 25, 30, you know, Hilton is one of his largest investments, went down a bunch. But then this hedge that he put on basically not only made up for all the losses, it made a little bit of a profit as well. And so the way to think about Bitcoin is, Bitcoin is really a hedge on the legacy system not operating perfectly, right? And so all odds say the legacy system will continue to work perfectly fine, right? That's what the, the trends show. That's what the probability would show, et cetera. But in the off chance that that system doesn't work, Bitcoin will become the global reserve currency and be worth you know, multiples of where it is today. And so going back to kind of how Ackman, I think, put together his portfolio, he put a very small amount, 100x, it covers for all the losses. I think people are thinking about it very similarly uh, in their portfolios. It's kind of this schmuck insurance or chaos hedge, which is, hey, I'm going to put a little bit into this asset. And by the way, if everything else in my portfolio shits the bed, this thing's going to do really well. And therefore, I probably net out even to a little up. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that legacy system. And, you know, it, it, it's impossible to make any sort of concrete prediction. Um, you, you guys do have like a philosophy and a framework for how you think about everything. But this notion that, you know, quantitative easing is just continuing to ramp up, you know, past bailouts of millions or billions of dollars are now turning into trillions of dollars for large hedge funds. It, 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 there's this escalation that's happening to the measures that have to be taken by uh, central banks and different economic policy to keep this legacy system running in the way to which people have become accustomed. And one of the things that I, I've seen floated or talked about that I frankly don't, don't really necessarily understand the execution of that, I hope maybe you can articulate a little bit for me, is some form of the adoption of a digital currency by these central banks in some form of that being the next step solution that they would have to run the next time there is a period where the market seems to be breaking and the legacy system isn't operating properly. Yeah, look, I, I always uh, use the example of uh, a crack addict, right? And if you think of a crack addict, what do they do? At one point, they were sober. They never tried crack before, right? Depending, regardless of what age they tried it first, there was a point in their life where they had never tried it. They try it the first time, they get high. Hmm, that was interesting. Go back and try it a second time. Hmm, I like that. Start doing it more regularly. As they do it more regularly, then they need more and more crack to get high, right? They, they become uh, kind of... Uh, um, you know, inundated or, or, or used to certain levels of the drug. And so you need more and more to get the same high. Well, all of a sudden, very quickly, they're taking so much of the drug that they're a crack addict, right? And they become unfunctional in society or dysfunctional in society. And then next thing you know, you can point, push them all the way to the point of death, right? An overdose, et cetera. And so that's how a crack addiction works. Well, the same thing happens with stimulus in an economy right? It's the same thing. It's a stimulant, right? It, it, it gives you a high, if you will. And so there was a time where economies used no stimulants and they tried a little 
And they said, oh, that was, that was interesting. Let's try it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Oh, this time we need a little bit more than last time to have the same effect. And it kept ballooning and ballooning and ballooning until in 2008, you saw quantitative easing hundreds of billions of dollars, right? Well, this time, if you notice, they're not talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. Now they're talking a trillions of dollars because we need a bigger hit of the stimulus or the drug in order to keep the economy going. And so I think what we're doing is we're getting to the point where there's a lot of people uh, historically who have done this. Uh, the problem is that it never ends well. And so when people say like, well, what happened in Venezuela? What happened in Zimbabwe, right? What happened in these places? They just kept printing so much money that they eventually uh, escaped into hyperinflation, right? That the currency literally failed them and, um, and it didn't end well, right? The currency failed. Um, and so I think that's the big risk here is, remember, you're going to go from a deflationary environment to an inflationary one, and you're going to see the devaluation of the dollar because they're going to print a bunch and flood the market. But what you've got to be careful of is that you don't print so much or lose control that it hits hyperinflation. And so I actually don't think that that's going to happen this time. Um, but it, it, it is a possibility um, that could, it could happen. And also, uh, there is a difference between it actually happening and people being scared of it happening. Right, that there's kind of the fear, and then actually what occurs. And I think that when people see trillions of dollars being printed, you you know, look around the world. Gold is having a, a it's getting overwhelmed with demand. Right, I, I think you'll see the same with Bitcoin over time. Um, and, and so I think that people just are very nervous as to uh, the Fed's reaction um, could be you know quite detrimental long term. So there's another idea that, so, so I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We're in that kind of weird other region where we're a city, but we definitely don't identify as like coastal elites or part of that like coastal narrative like that, coastal drove that drove the 2016 election and all this other stuff that's happening. And one of the conversations that's happening here is concerns about in general, the financialization of the economy. Um, the feeling that people are seeing with all the PPE that people need associated with you know, healthcare workers treating the coronavirus, hey, we don't make enough stuff here, whether that's a ventilator, mask, or these other things. And Pittsburgh has this rich history of being a place that made steel, and we made America, we made the world because of how much steel we pumped out. And there's a, there's a, a strain of a conversation here happening of, well, can we get back to that and almost detach to some degree from the financialization that has pervaded so much of the economy? And I'm curious how maybe just how you see these two, this, this inflation of fiat currencies and the role of cryptocurrencies potentially playing into that. And if you've heard that sentiment elsewhere, because when you use the example of Zimbabwe and Venezuela, um, you know, I, I don't know uh, a deep amount of the history there, but we do have this unparalleled geographic advantage relative to other economies in that we have oceans protecting us from a national security standpoint. We have an enormous plot of arable land in the middle of the country, um, all sorts of other riches and resources that other economies aren't privileged to have access to and have a diversity of. So I'm curious, that's a, that's a big question, but I'm, I'm hoping maybe you can tie some dots together. Yeah, look, I, I think that um, you know, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head here that there's a lot of issues, right? And um, one of them is uh, kind of the financialization of the economy, for sure. You know, the, the second thing is uh, the current financial crisis is being driven by the fact that the U.S. government has told people to go home and shut down their businesses. And, you know, th there's uh, a huge debate as to whether that is the right decision or not. Uh, I think most people side on the side of, yes, that is the valid thing to do, given the uh, health 
um, concerns and, and kind of the COVID-19 crisis, et cetera. Uh, but really what you have is you have a health crisis in uh, kind of this pandemic type um, you know, situation that is now cascading into an economic crisis, right? And, and when faced with the decision, um, you know, I think a lot of people look at this and say, hey, we could one, allow the healthcare system to fail, or we could allow the economy to fail. And we're choosing the, uh, to protect the healthcare system uh, and the lives of American citizens. And so I think that, um, you know, that, that will uh, be an okay decision and people will be cool with that for a while. But if this stretches on for, uh, you know, really any extended period of time, you know, more than, I don't know, two months, uh, I think you're going to have a lot of um, kind of pent up social unrest. Um, and, and so I don't see that kind of happening just because, again, people need to eat. They need to get out of their house, et cetera. Uh, and, and so what that leads to then is this talk, topic about the economy, right? And you nailed some of it. Hey, how come we don't have PPE, right? I, I tweeted a picture yesterday of uh, nurses literally wearing trash bags in the hospital. And the only reason why that picture went viral is because somebody at that hospital who's a nurse manager died. He's like 40 years old and died from coronavirus. Well, why don't those people have what they need, right? Ventilators, huge problem. Why don't we have more ICU beds, right? All stuff. Well, the truth is because we never needed this stuff, right? Actually, they've been pretty good and they've had the PPE that they need given the influx um, that, that they've had. Now, I think that there will be, um, you know, a lot of that will change. But also what's going to have to happen here is you're going to get a, a big change in the American economy, right? Most of these small businesses that uh, have recently shut down are not coming back, right? There's people who are just packing it up, restaurants saying, look, I'm done, I'm not coming back. And so, you know, we just saw the, the unemployment uh, numbers today, 3.28 million people. Um, if you put that in context, uh, before, uh, or at the end of February, there was um, 3.5% unemployment, which is about 5.8 million Americans. And so uh, today, we jumped from 3.5% to about 5.5%, right? So more than a 50% jump in the unemployment level in the United States. Well, if you go back to the Great Depression, something that's really interesting is in 1929, um, the unemployment number up through Q3 was only 3.1%. So it was kind of a historic low then. We just had a historic low, uh, 50-year low in uh, February of this year. Well, in 1930, we got to 8.7% unemployment. Then we got to 15% in 1931. So kind of in you know the first year, you go from 3.1 to 8.7, then you go to 15 point whatever it was. Well, already we just jumped in a matter of two weeks from 3.1 or three weeks from 3.1 to 5.5. If we go another month, we're probably going to be somewhere in the you know seven to eight and a half percent range, right? If we go through kind of Q2 into Q3, we're going to be over 10% unemployment by the end of Q3, right, at this pace. And so what I think ends up happening here is people start to realize the way to solve an economic crisis is to get people back to work, turn American businesses back on, put American workers back to work. And when you talk about places like Pittsburgh that kind of are outside of that coastal elite or intellectual elite type um, situation, what do they know, right? You know, one of my favorite people in the world uh, is John Rockefeller. Right. And, and I've probably watched shows like I don't know if you've ever seen uh, The Men Who Built America. It's a big documentary the History Channel did. And it talks about, you know, Andrew Carnegie and John Rockefeller and, and the kind of Ohio, uh, Western Pennsylvania, that, that whole region of the world really drove a lot of American innovation during the Industrial Revolution, et cetera, uh, for the railroads, oil, steel, et cetera. And so what I think you end up seeing is people saying, look, this is in our DNA. This is in our community. Right. This 
economic output is what we do. We've built our families and our legacies on this stuff. We want to get back to work. And, and what I think you're going to find is you're going to see a lot of companies that uh, may have been doing one thing and say, hey, we're going to move and do something else because the economy needs us to do that. And then there's other people who are just going to go back to work. Um, and, and so we've got to do it in a safe manner, right? You got to be careful with kind of the COVID-19 stuff and make sure you're not exposing people. The last thing you want to do is let everyone go back to work and then you get this huge flare up again. Um, but, but I do think that the economy will look different moving forward. And, um, it, you know, whether it's good or bad, I, I have my opinion, but my opinion frankly doesn't matter. You're going to get more of a nationalistic view of the world because people realize, hey, we had this reliance on China and our supply chains and look what just happened, right? We can't have that happen again. Or, you know, there was kind of uh, the spread of the virus from a whole bunch of other countries, right? It's not just China. I mean, if you look at uh, other countries around the world, they got it from each other. Right. And, and so you end up getting this kind of nationalistic view of the world because we have recency bias. Right. And, and we all say, hey, we got to change this so this doesn't happen again. I think you're going to see that in the economy just as much as everywhere else. Yeah. Just keep fighting the last war. Yeah. And, and, and here's the crazy part. Right. Is if you think about um, I, I actually wrote something up and then I deleted it. So you're, you're the first person I'm saying this to publicly. I, I wrote up a piece and I basically said, look, we're at an economic war. Right. But we're at economic war with ourselves. And we sent our best soldiers home. Our most productive employees, right, and, and kind of workers, we sent them home. And we probably sent them home for good reason, because of the COVID-19 thing. But the only way to win a war is you got to get the soldiers back on the battlefield, right? You got to get them producing economic output. And so what I actually think that we should do in some form or fashion is we should, one, immediately identify who are the most vulnerable. How do we protect so the old and, and those with pre-existing conditions, let's get them quarantined, get them in safe places. Then we should say, if you're under the age of 40 years old, this is a time of national emergency. We need people who are willing to serve their country and go to work. And by the way, if you volunteer to do this, you may get sick, but that's the risk you're going to take, but your country needs you right now, right? And my guess is that there's actually a lot of people who would be willing to go to work, Right. And if you can kind of do it in a way where one, it's on a volunteer basis, two, they understand the risks that they're taking, three, they also are quarantined, meaning that you put them up in hotels or whatever, so they're not going to work and then going home and getting their you know, parents or grandparents or their, their loved ones sick, whatever. What you end up doing is you, you try to create a situation where the world's not black and white. We don't have to choose healthcare system or economy. There's actually probably some gray solutions in there, but we've got to be creative and we've got to be innovative and, and kind of have some ingenuity to ourselves in how to do that. My guess is that the government's not going to come up with those solutions. We've got to turn to private businesses um, and kind of the entrepreneurship streak of America and say to American entrepreneurs, help us solve these problems um, and, and let's get people back to work so that we can turn around this economic crisis. Yeah, it's, it's scary and there's headlines and numbers that, you know, pop up and, and can definitely scare you, but I'm with you on the human ingenuity and the potential for this to be our finest hour as a race and as a, as a population. So um, I'm really grateful that you shared some time to come on the show before uh, I let you go and ask Ashton the last two questions. Um, is there a restaurant that you are going to rush out or have been rushing out to support locally um, in the face of the hardship that obviously is bes uh, besetting the restaurant industry? Yeah, I, I took a walk uh, the other day in New York City, and uh, I walked from, um, you know, in the 40s down to uh, about in the 20s. And uh, as I was walking, I was just looking, 
at least 50% of stores and restaurants are all, you know, uh, shut down, uh, probably closer to like 75%. And as I walked down there, what I realized was, uh, I want to go to every single one of the restaurants, right? And, and, and it's almost a, a thing where you say, look, not only one do am I tired of, uh, you know, eating inside of my apartment, uh, but we've actually been ordering out a lot because we're trying to help, you know, whatever these businesses are that we can, at least through the ordering mechanism. But at the same time, you just realize, look, these people are going to need help. And so it's less about like, hey, there's this one food that I really want, you know, and more so just uh, I think hopefully people will realize that there's going to be this time in um, – in kind of uh, the timeline where you're going to be allowed to go out. You're going to be allowed to go support those local restaurants. And I hope people do that. Yeah. I mentioned to do it too. We have a, a full list that we're hammering takeout from, but also, you know, ready to get back in the restaurant as well. Um, Pump, this has been great. Thank you so much for sharing some time with us. For folks that want to, you know, listen to your podcast, follow along with the stuff that you're thinking about and studying, where can they connect with you in the digital world? Yeah. Um, podcast is, uh, the pomp podcast. Uh, you can just Google it. It's on all the major platforms. Um, and then, uh, if you go to Twitter at a Pompliano, uh, I'm, uh, probably tweeting a little too much and, uh, and, uh, you know, spending too much time on there, but, but that's where you can find me. Respect. Uh, we're going to link that in the show notes, going deep slash podcast for this and every episode of the show. Uh, but before we let you go, Pomp, going to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Yeah. So uh, throughout this whole thing, uh, I, I've been, um, you know, ending the letter that I write each morning, uh, just asking people to be kind to each other. Um, and, and my whole thing here is uh, it's a time of great stress for a lot of people. And some of that stress is going to be due to the uncertainty. Some of that stress will be uh, due to financial circumstances. Uh, some of that stress will be due to health issues or family issues. Um, and, and so in a time like this where most people are just generally stressed, uh, the little acts of kindness can go a long way. And this doesn't have to be kind of the cheesy, you know, hey, I went and I uh, you know, donated money um, to some guy on the street and then I got to take a picture and put it on social media or, um, you know, hey, go through your phone book and call every person. And it doesn't have to be that, right? It can simply just be uh, a, just a thank you, right? A smile, just little things that um, I think try to put people in a better mood and, and just show that like, hey, we're all going to get through this. Um, it's going to be okay, but uh, there's people suffering right now, right? And, uh, and um, if you can't help them with you know, financial means or, or anything else, the least you can do is just be kind to them. And, and frankly, you don't know what other people are going through. So I think that's kind of the mantra right now. Amen. I think that is the perfect note to wrap up on. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate it, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me. We just went deep with Anthony Pompliano. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this interview with Pomp. If you want to check out all our past blockchain-related interviews, go to goingdeepwithaaron.com slash blockchain for interviews with Eric Voorhees, Brendan Ike, Roger Veer, Joseph Lubin, and a few others. If you're also interested in learning more about the great entrepreneurs that occupy Western Pennsylvania, we have so many fantastic past interviews in our library, including interviews with J.D. Ewing, who does office furniture wholesaling, Jason Wolf, who's been an incredibly successful technology entrepreneur, and all sort of great roboticists like Jurgen Pedersen and Brian Seleski. We'll have another great episode for you next week. 
Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.